From WAMU 88.5 at American University in Washington, welcome to the Kojo Namdi Show, connecting your neighborhood with the world. I'm Mark Fisher, sitting in for Kojo. Coming up this hour, watch your kids playing video games, and what's the first sound you hear? Well, it might be the rapid fire of an automatic weapon. Since the early days of video games, the perspective the viewer sees has often been that of the shooter. But that is starting to change, or so some people in the industry tell us, as more games move away from violent storylines. Two weeks after the Electronic Entertainment Expo, the annual showcase for the gaming industry, the buzz is about what's hot in game design, stories where players explore explore new worlds rather than kill off enemies, more women characters, and the introduction of virtual reality. Joining us for this Tech Tuesday discussion about new trends in video gaming, Bill Harlow is hardware and software technician for Macs and PCs at Mid-Atlantic Consulting. He's one of WAMU's computer guys. Welcome. Thank you. And Lindsay Grace is a professor in the School of Communication at American University, director of the school's game lab and studio. Welcome to you. Thank you. Kristen Bizzio is Professor of Leadership Studies at the University of Richmond and a pop culture critic. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So, Kristen, why don't we start with you? There's been a lot in the video game press about this sort of cultural shift that is supposedly going on in which the industry and the designers uh, are uh, moving, pushing away from the violence that uh, the the industry is at least stereotypically associated with. Is this uh, just hype? Is it the beginnings of an actual change? Is something real happening here? I mean, in... My experience and sort of from my viewpoint as a critic rather than as an actual designer, what I'm seeing are more and more games that are either de-emphasizing violence, so they're adding other components to their core gameplay, or they are actually not including violence at all. And I'm seeing more and more of this as the industry is diversifying in terms of both gamers and in terms of the games themselves, and like any industry or any popular culture medium, as it matures, it gains different new aspects. And I'm seeing the same thing happening in games right now. So, Bill, uh, right after the Newtown shootings uh, a while back, I went out to Silicon Valley to do a a story about this very same phenomenon that was supposedly happening then. Mm -hmm. And what I found is that at the big companies, it's still pretty much business as usual. But in a lot of the smaller studios, there are creative young designers who want to move in this direction, uh, but th- the, that the market forces still seem to be primarily uh, people want to buy those shooter games. Yeah, I mean, you look at the uh, the big sellers are going to be first-person shooters, they're going to be sports games, and, you know, that may shift eventually, but, I mean, it's 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 a risky industry, too. Like, even when you, when you think of a company like Activision publishing Call of Duty, that is a very expensive game to make, and I'm sure they're not going to do a complete 180 anytime soon. They, they just can't afford to, uh, to uh, bet the farm like that. But you're right about the smaller games for sure. And in fact, uh, the cool thing I like about uh, what's happening with the gaming consoles is they're embracing a lot of these independent uh, gamer games. So when they have their E3 presentation, it's not just the big heavy hitters. They, they feature a lot of these independent games. And I think that makes uh, a good argument for the more compelling games out there and um, hopefully presents them to a bigger audience. 
You can join our conversation about video games by calling 1-800-433-8850 or email us at kojo at wamu.org. Let us know uh, whether you think pop culture is changing uh, video gaming. What cultural trends do you see reflected in the new games on the market? And uh, Lindsay Grace, uh, when you look at... uh, when you teach students about creating games that have a social impact, uh, these are presumably games that don't focus primarily on violence. Uh, is this what students want to do now? And, and do they, uh, do you think that there's a place in the market uh, for them to, to get jobs and do that kind of work? Sure, sure. So I've been teaching for about 12 years. And the thing that I've noticed in, in games in particular is that people are interested in more diverse experiences. So the analogy I often make is that, uh, you know, the first time you have a glass of wine, you think, okay, well, that was pretty good. And the more wine you have, the more refined your palate becomes. And uh, the same thing is happening amongst uh, game players. So game players are maturing. So the average age is you know 35 to 37 these days. Uh, and as you play more of the sort of traditional game, you start to say, well, I like this one aspect of it. I wish there were a whole game that, that allowed me to do that. And so uh, we've got about 30, 35 graduate students in our program, and we're wholly focused on social impact games. And those folks are coming in with very explicit uh, interests. They want to uh, affect the world of business, the world of education, Uh, But they also want to make meaningful experiences, which is the the sort of theme of the last five years, particularly independent games. What can I do to change the world through my play? What can I do to create experiences that are beyond sort of eliminating my enemy? And, uh, Kristen, the the point that Lindsay made about uh, people growing into this, uh, I mean, if you think of other arts, other fields, uh, nobody starts out as a teenager saying, I I only want to see indie films. I'm not going to go see the the big summer blockbusters. So presumably there's a maturation process that's going on within the the average consumer. Uh, We're not seeing a trend where teenagers are turning away from those splashy, violent games, are we? Yes and no. I mean, you're right in the sense that our tastes as individuals are going to change and shift as we get older, but you are seeing a lot of kids not playing violent games. So one of the big things that's impacting that is the fact that so many of them are playing on an iPad, on an iPhone, on an Android phone, and shooters just don't work very well on those iOS and sort of tablet devices. And so they're playing Flappy Bird. Uh, They're playing Candy Crush. They're playing uh, Minecraft. And none of these games are those violent kind of shooting games. And so most of the time, the students that come into my class uh, are more familiar with puzzle games and more familiar with those kind of games than they are with shooters. And yes, you're always going to have, you know, that subset of the average student body who are big into gaming and those hardcore gamers who are much more familiar with Call of Duty. But I think what we're actually seeing is as more people start gaming, more of the new gamers are less interested in those violent games than sort of what we have come to think of as a gamer persona. And is part of that shift a a gender factor with more uh, girls and women coming into gaming? Does that change the dynamic at all and what what gets made and what gets bought? That's one of the current theories, yes. Um, I'm, I'm sort of hesitant to say that more women equals fewer violent games. Um, I play Call of Duty. <laughs> I am obviously female. And so I but think... But in general, that, that is, you, you can make some generalizations there, at least based on the industry data, no? Some generalizations, yes. Uh, but I think one of the things that's happening is what we think of as 
gendered media, whether it's games or television or movies, tends to skew toward the men are playing the violent or watching the violent media and women are not. But we're actually seeing that starting to become less of a gender divide as games develop and also just as we move forward as a society is you're seeing more and more of the split becoming 50-50 in no matter what medium you're talking about, no matter what kind of game you're talking about. Bill, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, narrative games where you construct a story as you move through a game. Is, is, is that something that is uh, – how new is that and, and what is it – how is it changing the, the scope of what's being made? Well, it's, it's kind of a, a broad question, but, I mean, there, there have been so many games for so long where um, th- you're not just on a fixed path. There might be a critical path you have to go down to really see the end of the story, but it branches out in, in so many different ways. And uh, role-playing games where you develop your character over time are, are – are, huge in that way, in that you you might go inside stories. Um, in my case, I've got a number of unfinished games like Fallout 3, where I've gotten so sidetracked, I've never seen the uh, the, the uh, main story, and that's fine. Um, but actually, th- there are um, some other games I'm seeing that I, I find really interesting in that way, too, in that uh, th- there was one, it's an indie game, but I, th- I thought it was really cool. It's called uh, the, I'm going to butcher the name, it's called the Yarg, I believe, and it's literally about constructing a story. Uh, and it's multiplayer, and you make choices, and uh, depending on what your characters do or see, they they grow and they expand the story in some ways, or they spectacularly fail, and then you completely um, um, destroyed the. You, you haven't won, but you've constructed a, a unique story, and it's it's very replayable too. You can find trailers for some of the new games we're talking about on our website. It's kojoshow.org. And let's go to uh, Daniel in McLean. Daniel, you're on the air. Today. Daniel, go ahead. Oh, hey, uh, so uh, I, I think it's an interesting topic of conversation. I've been a gamer for God only knows how long, and I'm, I'm 28 now, and I've been playing since probably 10 or 11 years old. And I think it's an interesting point to try and make the correlation between perhaps some political pressures and the idea of sort of violent games becoming a bit passe. But when you take a look at where a lot of the awards are going um, through – uh, everything from expos and everything else, and then sales records that are being set, they are still being associated very much with uh, violent games. I think that what you're really seeing is uh, more of an economic drive. That field has become so oversaturated that people are looking to alternatives like Little Big Planet to try and carve out new niche audiences in what is a really hyper-competitive and, and not a very wide, large margin field. So, you know, take a look this fall. Uh, you know, Fallout 4 is going to come out it's going to set all kinds of sales records it's going to win every award and so i don't really think that the drive is necessarily that uh every that there are less violent games i think it's simply more that uh uh, producers are trying to find a new market because there just isn't that much money in that crowded of a field lindsay I think this observation is actually uh, fairly accurate. So one of the things that I think is driving a lot of this change is simply the fact that you need a wider demographic. Every business that or every industry that isn't growing is in trouble, right? That's a sort of standard economic principle. So what you are seeing are, are a lot of companies taking bigger, taking more risk uh, on the kinds of plat- the kind of games that they're creating. So it's there's still some really surefire bets. A lot of the same sort of intellectual property. I'm going to do another Tomb Raider. I'm going to do another Call of Duty, and those pay the bills. But they're also investing in these independent game makers with the expectation that they may come up with a genre we haven't seen before. Uh, And that genre, you don't want to be the last person to that genre. You want to be the first one there so everyone buys your game. 
Okay, thank you for the call, Daniel. Let's go to Andrew in Reston. Andrew, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? Good, thanks. Good, good. Um, I just had an observation and question um, regarding the topic. Specifically, um, I, I was interested to see uh, or the point that we're moving away from violent video games. And I was wondering, <clears throat> with the, gro- uh, the growth of like mobile apps and mobile gaming, like quoted before, um, you know, people playing Clash of Clans and things, which are not necessarily as violent or not violent at all, like with Candy Crush, how much of that, uh, this move away um, from violent games are more because these mobile apps have kind of expanded uh, extensively and kind of those violent video games are not necessarily as conducive to that mobile interface where if people are going to, you know, want to actually play those games like Call of Duty, having a controller is ideal. And the entry point into being able to get, you know, like a PlayStation or an Xbox means you're shelling out at least $400 before you even buy the game. And uh, I was just wondering if maybe there was a correlation between um, those two points. Bill Harlow? So I think there are actually a a lot of points there. Um, You're absolutely right about the controller being, you know, for traditional game, you need a traditional controller. um, And that may be a control pad or a mouse and a keyboard. but the other thing um, besides that is the fact that no, not everybody needs a, a high-end gaming PC or needs a gaming console, but everybody these days needs a smartphone. And what that also means is that you're, you're getting everybody. So the audience is completely different uh, than your traditional core gamer who has every game console. So I think it's a mix of the, the uh, technical realities, and it's also a mix of just kind of automatically broadening your audience. And I think that's actually really exciting. And I think going forward, that's... You know, that could be where you see a lot of where uh, gaming uh, makes some of its biggest changes and on these mobile platforms, and that may broaden into things like computing and the living room later. When we come back after a short break, more of your calls, and we'll talk about some of the fantastical worlds there are to explore in some of the new kinds of video games. We're talking with our computer guys and our uh, experts on video games on this Tech Tuesday. I'm Mark Fisher, and this is the Kojo Namdi Show. Welcome back. I'm Mark Fisher of The Washington Post, sitting in for Kojo Namdi, and we are talking about video games on this Tech Tuesday. You can join us by calling 1-800-433-8850. Let us know about the biggest change you've seen in recent years in video gaming, and what do you enjoy more, shooter games or exploration or puzzle-solving games? 1-800-433-8850, or email us at kojo at org. And Lindsay Grace, uh, the Electronic Entertainment Expo, uh, known as E3, was held earlier this month. A lot of new releases from the gaming giants, Nintendo, Microsoft, Sony. If you were going to buy a gaming console, uh, which one would you pick, or would you just skip that entirely. <laughs> so uh, honestly, I've uh, I've changed my gaming taste. So uh, I'm no longer much of a console player. And one of the things that I've seen as a trend for people around my age is that we have less and less time to sit down and really play. So the mobile space is very attractive. Playing four minutes of a game and extending that four minutes over a week uh, is really 
sort of our, our mode of play. Uh, having said that, there were some really great titles that were exposed at E3. Uh, I love to see, for example, a female protagonist. So we've got things like Mirror's Edge uh, and some other um, big announcements at, t- at 2015 that I think compel me to at least um, – Use the console we have at the AU Game Lab. <laughs> <laughs> That's convenience. <laughs> and uh, uh, Kristen Bazayo, when you think about uh, consoles and, and maybe the whole concept feels a little bit dated at this point, but given the mobile revolution, uh, certainly in, in almost every area of entertainment, we're seeing a massive movement into mobile. Uh, you would think that, or at least as, as a layman, I would think that, that video games would be a little more, video gamers would be a little more reluctant to make that shift because the experience is so much less involving. I mean, all this great art that goes into the game and it's it's showing up on this tiny screen, is that proving to be a deterrent or does convenience trump everything? I think that what you're seeing in terms of the mobile gaming is those are a lot of new gamers. Um, you're seeing the people who would not otherwise play games playing games. Uh, you're seeing, you know, my mom playing games on her smartphone and on her tablet. She would never purchase a console. Gamers who already have consoles or gaming PCs are not going to stop doing that unless they have a serious sort of life reason not to do that. So as gamers get older and they're having kids and families, you might see that start to fall off, particularly in terms of buying new ones. But they're going to hang on to the ones that they have. And so part of what we're seeing and one of the big announcements at E3 was that the Xbox One is now going to be backwards compatible with a lot of former 360 games. And that is, I think, a response to what a lot of gamers are saying, which is that I'm not going to reinvest. I want to keep playing the games that I have and I want to keep playing them so I'm not going to buy the Xbox One because I can't continue to play the games that I already play and love on that new console. So that was one of the big, big things that popped up this year is the recognition that gamers are still going to want to play on consoles, but they're also not going to want to let go of what they have. Like This isn't always about what's shiny and new. It's about really loving the whole medium, whether it's old or new. So in a way, it's taking a different path than the music industry took for years, where every time they plateaued out there, a new technology came along and they said, you got to dump those LPs and buy cassettes, and then you got to dump those and buy CDs and so on. And they were able to essentially resell the entire inventory again. You don't think that's going to happen in video games? Well, I I will say this. It sort of is happening. And for someone who is a uh, lifelong gamer, it's kind of aggravating. The the high-definition remaster is a thing going on right now, which is uh, really frustrating because uh, I think part of it, it's filling a need because you buy a new console and you need something to play on it. And it takes a while. It takes a lot of money to make a, a, a brand new game from scratch. So, well, let's take uh, the old Tomb Raider and re-release it as uh, the definitive edition with uh, slightly nicer graphics. And I've done that for a lot of other t- titles to the point where I think they're starting to be a bit of a fatigue um, in this uh, sort of practice. Mm-hmm. Let's hear from Mary in Fredericksburg. Mary, you're on the air. Hello. I was wondering how the change to new consoles affects the single-player versus multiplayer divide. I remember... When I was a kid, having to hook up different sort of gaming systems, three different Xboxes or whatever, how has that changed now? Kristen? So thank you for your question, Mary. Uh, I think that what we're seeing, particularly with consoles, is a division between who uses what. Um, And I don't think it's affecting single player all that much. Most titles are released on multiple platforms. Uh, There are some that are exclusives or are early release exclusives. But I think it's who you play with is what 
equipment you own. So if you own <laughs> an accurate. Xbox, you play on Xbox Live. If you own a PlayStation, you play on the PSN. If you own a PC, uh, you play on Steam. If you own a Mac, you play less than everybody else. <laughs> um, so I think more it's more impactful for multiplayer players and multiplayer games than it is for single player. Okay, thanks, Mary. Um, let's go to Joe, who also wants to talk about uh, multiplayer games. Joe, you're on the air. Yes. Uh, what do you think of games like EVE Online, which have been around for more than a decade and attract all age ranges from young kids to retired people religiously playing the game, as well as folks all around the world? This is a large space game that has everything from industry and commerce to the uh, ship fighting that goes on. Lindsay Grace. So uh, one of the really charming things about what we generally call the massively um, online uh, multiplayer games is uh, is the idea that we have folks who are uh, not so worried about intergenerational play. So what's really wonderful from the academic side and from the industry side is you can have uh, 18-year-olds playing with 70-year-olds. And it doesn't matter because you have an avatar, you're playing in this world, you're working in guilds. One of the most researched games uh, essentially in history has been... Um, uh, world of Warcraft. And World of Warcraft is like EVE Online. It's this sort of rich world that has been perpetuated by its player base for uh, upwards of a decade. So uh, th- that's Lindsay Grace. He's professor in the School of Communication at American University, d- where he directs the school's game lab and studio. And uh, Bill Harlow, uh, one of our WAMU computer guys, talk to us a little bit about uh, virtual reality. This is the hot new technology in video gaming. Who is adding VR headsets, and how will they change the way things are being played? Well, it's it's, it's interesting because ever since uh, the 90s, I've been kind of fascinated by the idea of this, and I've been fascinated by, by things like, uh, 3D graphics, so uh, or true stereo 3D graphics. So seeing it come around now to the point where it actually seems legitimate is is really exciting to me. Um, I've gotten a chance. I actually brought it in um, uh, to a show once. Uh, the Oculus Rift development kit one. I showed that to Kojo. Let him walk around Seinfeld's apartment, and that was so exciting because that thing is actually even compared to 2015, it's very primitive, very low resolution. There's some latency in, in the movement, but it was incredible. And the sense of presence and the sense of scale of everything around you it was just about perfect. So you've got um, the Oculus Rift, which is right around the corner. It's going to be coming um, early in 2016. Um, you've, that's going to be, I think, mostly for PCs. Um, You've got uh, Sony's Project Morpheus, which is a very similar technology coming to the PlayStation 4. You've got um, um, Valve has one. They partnered with HTC on something called the Vive, which is another headset. And they're also adding these motion controls and tracking controls, too. Um, The other thing that really excites me about this is that I've had some of the, uh, the most fun in these games not really doing much. And the idea of being able to make a new type of experience where you're not running around shooting or you know, you're just you're just exploring that that I think could potentially bring in a, a lot of new people too. Lindsay, so one of the things I think is really interesting about uh, the VR history is I actually uh, studied one of the places that created the first reasonably costing um, cave virtual reality system, and a lot of the challenges were uh, were. I guess, addressed about 10 years ago. But when we were talking earlier about this notion that uh, you have to remaster or you have to find a way to sell your old product, what's interesting is VR is that next dimension. So instead of sharpening graphics, we're actually giving people more whole experiences. And one of the fascinating things is the first time that we really have to think about players as um, physical beings Mm -hmm. in space. So a lot of the challenges in VR right now are actually about making sure that people don't get nauseous because a lot of people can't play for more than 15, 20 minutes. Uh, And how we keep them engaged in an experience 
experience uh, long enough uh, is actually a physical challenge, not just a um, an attention challenge. So Humans that's are really obsolete, is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> the designers are beyond the, the scope of uh, of what their customers can cope with. What? So that's one end of the spectrum. Obviously, things get sharper and and more detailed uh, in that world, but. At the other end, at the mobile level, uh, where I would imagine it must be very frustrating to be a designer who wants to do big, elaborate stuff, uh, and then you're constricted by the size of a phone. Or is that is that just an additional challenge, Kirsten? I would sort of suggest that if what you want to make is a huge, immersive world, is you won't be designing for a phone. Um, we are also seeing in terms of graphics and artistry is a big push to go back towards pixel art. So this kind of love of retro um, Minecraft being one of the most popular games right now, which was an indie game and then got purchased by one of the big houses uh, is pushing people sort of away from this idea that in order for it to be advanced, it has to be more detailed and the graphics have to be sharper. And if you look at a Minecraft avatar, it's, a bunch of little blocks. You know, it doesn't look photorealistic. And I think one of the problems in VR as well as in gaming itself is something called the uncanny valley, which is when you have something that is extremely close to real life in terms of appearance, but it's just off enough that it starts to become weird and painful and discomforting. And people don't like it when something crosses into the uncanny valley. So they retreat to Tetris <laughs> in the extreme. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> so Bill, Bill Harlow, uh, so a lot of video games now have these these fantastical worlds to yep. explore. And, and another trend is that these worlds are, are bigger and more detailed. Uh, so what what's going on in that part of the world? What, what do you see out there that, that is exciting and not nauseating? Well, um, what, what I would say, um, especially with, with tech getting more and more powerful, um, there are a few things. One is, in some cases, the multiplayer spaces. Uh, the other thing that uh, I appreciate as uh, you know more of a traditional gamer is that uh, I generally am drawn to experiences that don't need to be that expansive, but they need to be rich. And a lot of the more expansive games, like, um, let's say, some of the older um, um, Elder Scrolls games um, or traditional computer RPGs, I found them to be wide but shallow. And what I, what I appreciate now, um, most recently with uh, The Witcher 3, is, uh, which is a new game that just came out this year, um, is that they're really starting to balance that as far as having something that feels like a huge world but still feels lived in and still feels like they're unique experiences that if you don't go on one of your side quests, you're not missing uh, something that is just busy work. You're missing something that actually adds to the story, adds to the world as a character. Let's hear from Derek in uh, Ashburn, Virginia. Derek, you're on the air. Yes. Good morning. I mean, good afternoon. I noticed that um, I've been playing games since I was five and playing Atari and Bong. And I'm 46 years old, and I'm currently right now playing Destiny on PlayStation 3. And I noticed that games are now pushing your senses to the utmost boundaries of unrealistic I mean, it's pushing you to the point where I noticed that uh, it's uh, it's weird that I never thought that I can be more attentive because it's funny that my doc my eye doctor now tells me these that uh, when I do my test my eye test of perception and stuff is always a hundred percent and he comes back and say you must be a gamer because <laughs> he's been um, to some of his conferences and said that people's uh, perception it seems to improve with gamers compared to most everybody else. 
Lindsay Grace, are we uh, dealing with a whole new kind of ophthalmological therapy? Absolutely. So one of the things that's really fascinating is there's um, several uh, research studies on how game playing can affect uh, attentiveness and abilities. So the most interesting to me is a series of studies that were done with uh, doctors uh, who were practicing surgery. And what they found is that for the sort of current generation or the, the newest type of uh, surgery, which is lathroscopic surgery, where there's a computer intervening, uh, those people who play games were con- consistently more effective uh, as surgeons than those who didn't. So it's a sort of practice skill. And we can see that in other spaces. Uh, there's a reason that simulations are so popular. They have afford people the ability to figure out where to, to, to uh, spend their attention. And the other interesting thing is we're actually working on a research project um, with, a, with an entity I can't quite announce yet uh, in the neuroscience space. And what's really interesting there is we're actually focusing on how to develop attention um, where attention deficits may be developing uh, and hone people's skills through the play of games. Kristen Bizzaro. Similar studies are coming out about actually how plastic the brain is, uh, how it develops and changes, and how gamers' brains have more developed in areas that have to do with directional space, with three-dimensional space, and they are more aware of the things that they're seeing. So it may not necessarily be, uh, Derek, that your eyes are changing. It's that your brain is evaluating that information more accurately. And we're more aware of what it is that we're seeing, not just that they're flashing colors, but in being able to identify what's happening. So this is sort of the flip side of the studies that we're seeing now about how uh, people retain more from reading printed matter than from reading off a screen. So there, there, there are some ways in which uh, the screen experience seems to dampen uh, what we absorb in other ways. It seems to heighten it. So one of the things that uh, we understand from the game design perspective, having taught it for more than a decade, is that play is practice. And that's actually what it does really, really well and the reason that the human animal must continue to play. And so digital play is just another form of play and that practice. And speaking of play, William in Charles County is here with a comment. William, you're on the air. Hello, yes. Um, I was talking about thinking about really the shift that we've seen in the past couple of years from the family or the living room to experience to the single person experience because what we see that like i just read a recent article saying that the new taylor won't have split screen multiplayer which may be huge for some people like me and my brother because we usually get our you know fun time together um playing the same games um uh, with each other at home but now that would be impossible or very difficult unless we both had xboxes and we both had Halo, copies of halo Etc. So what I wanted to say was, what do you think is really striving this huge change from like the death of the living room to this single player or the single person um, shift in gaming? Lindsay Grace. So uh, I'm going to give you a couple of answers. Um, some of them are going to be darker than others. So we'll start oh. with the dark one. Uh, you can sell more titles if everyone needs to have a copy of the title in order to play. So this notion of a party game uh, is is detrimental to high profits, right? So if you decide you want to play this game with someone else, they need to go home, make sure their copy's running, and you need to go home and make sure your copy's running. So that's two copies for the, for the activity of one. Uh, the other side is actually a bit brighter, which is that we We've also seen the growth of um, 
for, for example, it's sort of standard to have four controllers linked to a, a standard console now. And the living room, I think, uh, the, the growth in living room games really happened with the Wii. When people started to say, this is a party game. I can just have people bowl. Everyone understands bowling. They may not understand what a guild is. They may not understand um, what, a, um, what a specific gun does. But they do understand bowling or tennis or whatever. So I think that, that Nintendo has really got a, a good pulse on that uh, and has done that for years. So I think there, there's some push and some pull. When we come back after a short break, more of your calls, and we'll learn what affection games are. That's here on the Kojo Namdi Show. I'm Mark Fisher. Welcome back. I'm Mark Fisher of The Washington Post, sitting in for Kojo Namdi, and we are talking about video games on this Tech Tuesday. If you'd like to join us, you can call 1-800-433-8850. We're talking with Bill Harlow from Mid-Atlantic Consulting, one of WAMU's computer guys. Kristen Bazayo is Professor of Leadership Studies at the University of Richmond, and Lindsay Grace is Professor in the School of Communication at American University. And uh, Lindsay, tell us about affection games. Sure. So uh, I actually spoke at the Game Developers Conference this year about affection games. And what's really interesting about them is they're games in which your primary goal is to either kiss, hug, or flirt to meet your needs. So um, it's this sort is of the opposite of a violent shooter game. Exactly. So that's the interesting thing. You know, I'm, I'm actually not a proponent of the idea that violent games make people violent. Uh, but I thought, well, what's the antithesis of it? Can we find out, can we do research to see if flirting, hugging, and kissing games make people flirt, hug, and kiss more? Wouldn't that be kind of neat and interesting to see? Uh, and so there's more, than, um, there's more than 200 of these games, and they're largely popular on mobile devices, and they're played by a pretty wide demographic. But they're very short. They're what we call casual games, and you really do kiss in the game. Some games even require you to kiss your phone as part of the activity. <laughs> um, and they're kind of wacky. something vaguely dehumanizing about that. <laughs> Absolutely. They're really wacky, but it's, it's interesting to, to ask the same sort of question. Like, this is a genre that didn't exist 15 years ago, uh, and it's coming out because there is this wider demographic. There, there are more people playing and more diverse types of play. And who, do we know yet who's buying affection games? Uh, we do have we have some indication. Uh, so originally uh, it was looking at about sixty five to seventy percent female. Uh, now it's actually moving to more of a fifty fifty split. And one of the reasons is that it is not um, it is not locked into the space where mark where games are only marketed towards women. Uh, it's actually in places like Google Play and on on iOS and the Apple App Store. And I think that's one of the reasons that mobile games are so interesting because if you wanted to play something like the equivalent of an affection game at say a GameStop, a traditional retailer, you had to go to that section. Right. And what's interesting is the sections don't mean as much when you're doing an online search. So it's it's uh, it's not quite like the pink Lego uh, uh, <laughs> exactly. approach. Of, right? uh, let's hear from Josh in Silver Spring. Josh, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking me, Paul. Um, yeah. Just, you know, this has been a big discussion for a while online about, um, you know, um, games and game developers and what kind of games that they're making. And I really don't see them coming up with too many good games that people want to play. Like, if people wanted to play these kind of games that everybody is complaining don't exist, like, why don't they make them? And also, you know, there's kind of this thought crime uh, mentality.
mentality where people that play these games people don't approve of are just bad people. And going on with that, it's just like people are just like looking for things to complain about. Okay, Josh, you're breaking up, but let's let uh, Kristen Bazayo answer. Uh, so thank you for your question, Josh. Um, one of the the big things that does prop up a lot in online spaces is the, well, if you don't like it, just make your own game. Um, and there is something to that, but not ultimately very much. There are currently a couple of platforms, um, Eris and uh, Twine and a couple of other similar programs where people can sort of try and make their own games. But when you really get down to it, if somebody wants a really high-quality game, that takes a lot of people and a lot of money. And so it's very hard to just make your own game in that sense. I mean, there are some ways to do a minor version of that, but it really is very difficult to make your own game and have it be exactly what you want. I think one of the other things, though, is that it takes time for these kind of shifts to happen. And so the first thing that you're going to see is the criticism coming out of the fan base, the criticism coming out of sort of pop culture circles where they'll say, hey, we're seeing this problem. Uh, let's say it's a problem with diversity in games or a problem with all the games are violent, whatever it happens to be. But then you have the lag time between when that call for change happens and when game companies and developers, whether they're indie or AAA, can actually produce that game. Games are in development very often for three, five, seven, eight years even before they actually hit the market. And so you are going to have multiple years of complaining before any of that stuff starts hitting because it just takes time. And one of the other things Josh seems to be asking about was the, the sort of stigma that violent games uh, produce. And uh, it sounded like he was sensitive to that. You don't want to be accused of being uh, you know, some boorish, potentially violent person as a result of the games that you're playing. Um, but uh, I know, uh, Kristen, you've done some, some research on this, this question of uh, comparing uh, violence in video games with violence in Shakespeare and other, <laughs> other works. Uh, what, what's the current state of thinking about whether video games do have an impact on, on violent behavior? Um, in terms of sort of formal research, I want to say it was in 2014, but it could have been 2013, the American Psychological Association actually withdrew the suggestion that violent video games cause violent behavior. Um, there are studies that suggest perhaps game playing can cause increased aggression, but the metrics for that were things like, did the subject pick up a pencil uh, after having played a violent video game that was dropped by the interviewer. And that, to many researchers, myself included, just doesn't seem to be an appropriate metric of violent behavior. And so there were a lot of people who were questioning this idea that, that these studies were actually completely valid. And so according to the APA, it's sort of now up in the air again. Um, so you get a lot of people that say, there's no direct causation. There's even very little in terms of correlation. And really, I think most people would say violent video games, like any violent media, going all the way back to Shakespeare and earlier, reflects a violent society in terms of how we think of things, not necessarily what we do. And so people who want to push for a less violent society are going to push for less violent media. 
And I don't really see anything wrong with that. But I also don't think that playing Call of Duty is going to turn you into a murderer. Right. Well, along similar lines, there's a post on our website, and uh, Lindsay Grace, uh, see what you think of this. Video games have always been about creating a narrative, whether this be a military special ops team weeding out terrorists or an open world where the player creates the narrative. It's the same thing in the end. The prevalence of shooters or otherwise morally ambiguous protagonists is just the medium allowing the players to explore realms they otherwise can't touch in real life. So I'll actually respond to that by um, using some of the literature within play itself. So as we understand play from the sort of psychological and um, evolutionary benefit, it's really about exploring. So it is about a a good play experience or good play um, design is actually about defining a space where I can maintain safety, but I can actually push the boundaries. That's sort of what play does. Uh, So in theater, that's the if we're talking about Shakespeare, that's the stage. Uh, And so here what we're seeing are games that let us do things that we can play with. So I don't... um, I don't know. I don't carjack on a daily basis, but I can do that in Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> but once every week or two, that's right, a different right. story. Right? <laughs> and so I can play with something in, in, in utter safety. I don't have to worry about getting arrested. I don't have to worry about hurting someone. And so I can see the attraction. What's really interesting, uh, and getting back to this other question about how uh, the industry is sort of uh, morphed, what's really interesting is that people say, great, I've done that a lot. I've shot a lot of things. What else do you have? Mm-hmm. Because they feel like that's that's been sort of played out. And so part of the development of narratives is about, um, say, moral ambiguity was a big thing. When when Fable came out and told you uh, years ago that you could play this role-playing game where you could choose whether or not you're going to be evil or good, and the game was going to adjust based on your good or bad behavior, that's fun play. And I, you know, most people I know are always sort of, they, they either go one extreme or they have the fun of trying to be right in the middle because there's a real challenge in being in the middle. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, at first you would say that's not particularly interesting. I can be in the middle and be, you know, evil and good in the, in the same day. But um, what happens is it's really just about playing uh, and play space is about making sure that you've got a space to play in. Let's hear from uh, Oscar in Arlington. Oscar, you are on the air. Um, hello. Uh, I was, you're talking about the present, present day, I don't know, Take. medium of video games. But what about the future of games? Like, there's an entire generation growing up on Minecraft. And when they grow up, the kids who are going to be game designers are going to uh, try to center games around the type of games they grew up with, like Minecraft. How do you think that's going to turn out? Well, Oscar, first of all, thank you because you've just lowered our demographic dramatically. We, we Oscar, really appreciate awesome. that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Lindsay Grace. So I'll tell you a story from my own personal life. So I started playing games when I was about four or five and then started making them around nine. And one of the reasons that people are so excited about um, what people are doing with Minecraft is because it's inspiring you to build your own. So one of the things I'm really excited about is the fact that we'll have this whole generation that has grown up on games who maybe wants to change the world of games themselves. Um, One of the things that you want to talk about the future of games, there's something, big word here, called human computation games. Essentially what it does is it allows people to play a game but actually solve a real-world problem. So imagine that you go into work, and at 9 o'clock in the morning, you play a game for two and a half hours, and you've actually just done your day's work, which is essentially what we're trying to move towards in human computation games. And the kinds of things that people solve are big problems in in chemistry and in in biology, uh, as well as uh, very simple problems around uh, tagging information, uh, so identifying music or identifying images. And so what's really great is that, I think, is 
a big part of the future. Uh, and the other thing I think is a really big part of the future is the extension of virtual reality to combine our reality with um, what we call sort of augmented reality. So I can play a game in, in 3D space in the real world and actually um, extend my game experience. And can you any of you recommend to Oscar a game that he would graduate from Minecraft into? Uh, Kirsten. Um, so one of the really sort of famous ones is Fold It. Mm -hmm. um, it's a protein folding game. And it sounds really clinical and scientific when I put it that way. <laughs> but it's about taking shapes and manipulating them. And they had originally tried to have a supercomputer do this. But the supercomputer just isn't as good at it as people. You don't have to be a scientist. You don't have to be, you don't even have to be five years old to play this game. And you can take and manipulate these shapes, and by doing it, you're actually advancing science. Uh, so that's one of the really well-known ones. But there are a lot of ARG, augmented or alternate reality games, that are aimed at changing the world. Uh, Free Rice is another one, where it's words. So you're, it's... Uh, a good way to study for your SAT vocabulary. Uh, but every time you get an answer correct, it donates rice to the hungry in some place across the world. And so there are more and more of these games that are showing up that are easy to get into, easy to play, don't involve shooting, and that are creating ways to improve the world itself. We have a tweet from Stephanie saying, for the elementary school set, they keep coming back to Minecraft. And so uh, the question, you know, is, is Minecraft sort of the monopoly of, of, of this era in that it will always be there? And are there other games that fit that, that, that description? Well, I think what's happening with Minecraft, I mean, it was, Microsoft bought um, Mojang, the uh, developer, for, what, $2 billion, close to that? Um, and... I think it could be the monopoly. I, I know Microsoft certainly wants it to be. They wouldn't have spent $2 billion <laughs> otherwise. But uh, I mean, the, the games industry, like a lot of pop culture industries, is a very Me Too space, right? So they're going to be, you know, there, there are a lot of games that try to piggyback on that. If you, and actually, a great place to look at that is Steam. Um, if you have a PC, you know, go to store.steampowered.com and just look, and you'll find a host of, building, of builder games where you gather resources and make new things and change the world around you. Let's go to Kurt in Chevy Chase. Kurt, you're on the air. Yeah, hi. Um, I wanted to bring up the idea of uh, streaming games. Um, I'm 30 years old. I've been playing games since I was, like, five. And lately, in the last, like, five or six years, I've been getting a lot busier with work. I find that I come home from a long day, and I don't necessarily have the energy to get into some of the games that I really enjoy. Um, I like playing strategy games, and on the weekend, I'll sit down for, like, five or six hours at a stretch and then play one of them, but... Um, if you only have a couple hours at night, you maybe don't want to do that. And I actually find that I enjoy just turning on a stream and watching somebody else play and sort of commentate over what they're doing as they're playing it. Um, I've also seen sort of a, a rise in, like, professional streamers, people who make their living just playing games and, and having other people watch them. Certainly. So the, 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 to bring up that idea. Yeah, the transformation of uh, gaming into a spectator sport. Lindsay? And it's the spectator sport part that's very interesting. So we have this uh, domain called eSports, and essentially eSports is a, you know, a whole uh, arena of people watching someone play a really good uh, game. The other interesting thing is this Twitch movement, right? So being able to um, go to Twitch and actually watch people play has a lot to do with the visual richness of the games, um, about the culture of games, and I think the 
most interesting thing is if you think about this notion of esports, essentially one of the ways to increase the number of players and the people who are interested in games is to say that games have the potential to replace our Sunday night football mm -hmm. or our NCAA um, championships. And there is a whole culture, as you mentioned in yourself, you've got people who started at five and have done it for 25 years. And we have, although we didn't mean to do it, we actually have a little league of game players, right? So you might have started with Super Mario Brothers and you've continued, you played some Metroid, etc. But essentially what happens is um, the same way that people are interested in baseball because they played it as junior high schoolers, we have people who are interested in watching these performances, these really experienced professional game players. It was fascinating to see that ESPN magazine had a cover story on eSports. So they, you know, they've, they've changed their whole <laughs> way of thinking. But uh, in the more traditional sports world, uh, in the earlier game, days of video games, obviously sports games were hot sellers. Is that still the case? Oh, that definitely is. That'll always be the case, too. I mean, we, we all love sports. And, you know, I know I personally, you know, would love to you know, live the fantasy of being a professional NHL player or, or a race car driver. And you look at a brand like uh, FIFA, that, that's, that's a global phenomenon. Okay, just a few seconds left. Um, what tell me? Tell me quickly about the the cost of games. Is, is there any ceiling to where they're going? Talking sixty dollars plus, uh, Kristen. What what do you anticipate? <laughs> um, I think what we're going to see is a wide range. Um, you're going to have everything from free to play, which we're seeing now, where you spend a little bit here and there to improve your gameplay, all the way up to get collectors editions of series that are coming out, where you're going to drop fifty extra dollars, a hundred extra dollars for the same game, in essence, that you have for a $60 disc. And that's just going to keep going. You're going to have more expensive, bigger things with, you know, figurines that come with the maps, whatever. Those are going to go high end, going to be very costly. And then you're going to keep the free to play the low end. Kristen Bazayo is professor of leadership studies at the University of Richmond. She's a pop culture critic. Bill Harlow is hardware and software technician for Macs and PCs at Mid-Atlantic Consulting. He's one of WAMU's computer guys. And Lindsay Grace is professor in the School of Communication at American University. He's the director of the school's game lab and studio. Thanks to all of you for being here. I'm Mark Fisher sitting in for Kojo Namdi. Thanks for joining us. WAMU 88.5 is your listener-supported NPR news station in the greater Washington, D.C. region. You can support the Kojo Namdi Show and all the regional coverage you value by becoming a member today. Click the Donate button at WAMU.org and thanks.